morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor, for that gracious introduction. I wish my wife had been here to hear that. It would have. Well, this is an exciting church. There's just no church like it. I love coming back out here. I always need a little victory in my life. And this is where you get it. Great to see so many of you. Many of you I know and some I, I do not yet know, but I hope to get to know you. I'm so proud of this young pastoral couple that God has supplied you here. I think they are absolutely tops. I believe in them. I've believed in them right from the very beginning. I know that God has his hand upon them, and the very best is yet to come. I, I'm so proud of you, Paul and Ashley. I'm so proud of you both. You, you really have the blessing of God on your life. And uh, I, I, I appreciate what you said. Anything that you accomplish in life, I'm, I'm going to take the credit for it. I, I, <laughs> any goofy mistakes you make, that's on Sharon. That's <laughs> oh, it's great to be with you. You're a jolly crew, and I always enjoy being back here. Um, let me just give you one brief uh, infomercial. Uh, Pastor Paul already mentioned it out in the lobby. There is a product table. I know that there, I think there are just two of the books that are there. Uh, this little book is called Dream. It's been a huge seller for us over the years. Uh, it's a very encouraging book about dream. I thought with the Dream Center and all the rest that we're talking about this morning, it might be useful. If you would like to get this book, then it's there. This is the, the one that made the New York Times bestseller list. It came out last February. Uh, this is called Relaunch. I'm, I'm very pleased with where it went and hit the New York Times list. If each of you, it, if each of you will buy a thousand copies this morning, you can put it back on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> Teach Bill O'Reilly a lesson, that guy. Uh, there, are, there is a lot of material in here about. Uh, particularly about turnarounds in life and leadership, and uh, some uh, story about ORU. Part of it was uh, during the time that I was here at ORU. might be interesting to those of you who live here locally and know some of the story there. Listen, I want to say this to you. It, it may not matter to you to hear it. It matters to me to say it. Uh, I, am, I serve as the president of Global Servants. My salary is established by the board of directors, and as a part of my letter of uh, employment, I'm not allowed to receive remuneration from any other source beyond that. It's a very generous salary, and I'm grateful for it. But it means that everything else, love offerings, honoraria from speaking places like this, book sales, royalties, even in bookstores around the world, all of that, every other source goes 100% directly to the foreign missions program at Global Servants, and not to me. That's not some huge sacrifice on my part. My salary is great. Jesus is taking care of Brother Mark. But it allows Allison and me to put hundreds of thousands of dollars a year into foreign missions that I could never do otherwise. So I hope that you will go out to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. <laughs> it accrueth not unto me. Listen, I, I just thought that 
video. They didn't know I was going to say this, but I would like. To, I thought the video about the Dream Center was was classy. That was powerful, very gripping, very engaging. That was that was well done. The production values were good. It was excellent. It was it was it was strong. I just kept sitting there asking myself, Have they messed up on these statistics? I, I just is that right what I'm hearing you say? Are you telling me that 80% of the third graders in the schools of North Tulsa failed the proficiency test? Is that what you're telling me? And 100% of the kids at the Dream Center passed it? Is that what I'm hearing? That, that's phenomenal. I'll tell you what that means to me. The schools in North Tulsa ought to turn the third grade over to the Dream Center. Great work. Great work. Congratulations. All right, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those now and turn to 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings chapter 7. There's a nice cheer for 2 Kings. A lonely book not often cheered for and very grateful. Now, when one comes to a great church like Victory, especially one where one has preached several times in the past, this is a window into the carnality of preachers' hearts. But I, I think I'm not unlike most speakers. I want to preach a big message. I want to, you know, you want to come in the pulpit and flex your homiletical muscles. And preach a big sermon. I don't have one today. This is, this is a simple little message to the church. It's a simple pastoral message to the church. So if you have your Bibles, so 2 Kings chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. There were four leprous men at the entry of the gate, and they said one to another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. But if we sit here, we die also. Now come, let us fall unto the camp of the Arameans. Your, your version, whatever you're reading from, may read Syrians. That's a perfectly legitimate translation. But it, it actually reads in Hebrew the Arameans, but the Arameans were from Syria. It was a very bloodthirsty and extremely violent uh, uh, tribe of, of warlike conquerors, a very warlike tribe called the Arameans, and from northern Syria. It would correspond, I think, to this modern group, ISIS. So they're surrounded by people like that. If they spare our lives, we will live, and if they kill us, well, we but die. So they rose at twilight. Please make a note of the word twilight because it's used twice in this passage. So they rose at twilight to enter into the camp of the Arameans, and when they came to the edge of the camp of the Arameans, there was no one there. For the Lord did cause the Aramean camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, even the sound of a large army, so that they said one to another, Listen, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians. So they got up and ran away again in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. The camp remained just as it was, and they ran for their lives. And when these leprous men came to the edge of the camp, they went into one tent, and they ate and drank and carried off silver and gold and clothes. One translation reads, expensive raiment. And they went and hid them. 
Then they went back, entered into another tent, and carried off things from there and went and hid that. Then they said one to another, we are not doing the right thing today. This is a day of good news or glad tidings. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, we will be found guilty. Let us now go and enter the city and tell the king's household. So they went and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Arameans and there was no one there. There was no sound of a man's voice, only the horses tied, donkeys tied, and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and told the king's household within. Let's bow our heads, if you will, and place your hand on your Bible, and let's pray together. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana. Porque te necesitamos mucho. Necesitamos un palabra de esperanza. Ayúdame, por favor, y úsame a su gloria si es posible. Y glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje. Lord, we thank you. We praise you that you are with us this morning. We thank you for your presence and for your power. And I pray that you will bless this message, O oh Lord. Brush aside every barrier to divine communication. And rush in over the threshold of our souls. That when we leave here today, we will say one to another. Surely the Lord hath spoken unto us. In the mighty name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. As terrible to contemplate as modern nuclear warfare is and it is terrible to press a button and obliterate a city on the other side of the globe but for sheer brutality there's nothing to compare with ancient hand-to-hand -hand warfare battle with axe and and spear and sword the, just for the sheer gore of it ancient warfare was brutal and among all the kinds of ancient warfare, siege warfare was among the most horrific. Because it was a warfare, a battle, if you will, a war of attrition. The ancient cities built for their own protection massive and virtually impregnable walls. Because they knew that attacking armies coming from long distances couldn't drag massive machines of destruction across the desert. They, wouldn't, they would arrive there to attack their cities without the machinery to pull their walls down. So it became a war of attrition. The attacking army would surround the city and try to cut off all its supply lines and starve the people in the city into submission. The people inside, for their part, would stockpile massive amounts of food. And then they would dig wells either in the city or outside the city and tunnel under and camouflage the wells as they did at Megiddo and Jerusalem. Then they would have water supply, stockpiled food, and they hoped for their part that the besieging army would finally just get discouraged and go away. That maybe they would get tired of sleeping in tents or living in the open or maybe there would be a mutiny or perhaps a, a rebellion at home and they would have to lift the siege and, and return home to, to quell the, the civil war. This, these sieges lasted often months and months and even years. You'll remember from your studies of Homer in college that this, the siege of Troy lasted 20 years. These were, these were horrific, long-lasting wars of attrition. 
Now here in the seventh chapter of two kings, we have the account of these, this Syrian tribe, the Arameans, who have surrounded the city of Samaria. You'll remember that the nation of Israel had been split, the southern kingdom, Judah, with its capital, Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom, Israel, with its capital of Samaria. And Samaria has been surrounded by this vicious, bloodthirsty army of Arameans under the command of their generalissimo, Ben-Hadad. And they have cut off all the supply lines, and the people inside Samaria are actually starving to death. We didn't read it this morning, but in the chapters just ahead of this, there is this monstrous story that is almost too gritty to even talk about in church of these two women who on the verge of starvation enter into this bargain, this unholy bargain of cannibalism. They each have a newborn baby and they agree that the first woman will put her baby up and that the baby will be killed and eaten and then when the flesh from that child is gone, the second woman will put her baby up and it will be killed. They do that with the first baby. The second baby, then when there comes time for that woman, she reneges on the bargain, and she won't go through with it. So the first woman sues her in king's court for breach of promise to get the king to make her give her baby up to be eaten. When the case comes before the king, he's horrified. He says, is this what we've come to? Is this the level of monstrosity and deprivation inside the city? And you'll remember he puts on sackcloth and walks the walls of the city tearing his garments and throwing ashes on his head because he's so horrified of where they are. And yet they know if they open the walls, there be, the, the gates, there will be no mercy from the Arameans. They will come in and it will be a horrible slaughter, house to house slaughter until every person is dead. Imagine now, if things are that bad inside the city, how bad are things for the people with leprosy? Remember in those days, lepers were not allowed to spend the night in the city. They had to live outside in caves and in leper colonies, isolated, living in the margins themselves in the very best of times. Now we have the account in this passage of four lepers, men with leprosy, inside the, the arched the archway. You've seen these pictures of ancient cities with these massive archways. They are there inside that archway to be covered from the elements. But they are outside the barred gates of the city. In other words, they are exposed in no man's land between two armies. And they are literally dying. Starving to death. Not just dying of their leprosy. They are starving to death like everybody else. One of them says to the others, look, he says, this is stupid. We're sitting here dying. If we got in the city, even if they would let us in, in the best of times, they'll hardly give us a crust of moldy bread. What would they give us now? Nothing. They don't have anything. So if we get in the city, we're going to die. If we sit here, we're going to die. Let's go out to the Arameans. If they kill us, okay, great, it's over with. But maybe... They will let us pass through their lines and go into the countryside and forage for food. Perhaps, who knows, maybe they will even have, lepros, uh, even have mercy on four old lepers and give us some food. And so they go out with their hands up, broken, diseased, wounded, dying, and starving to see if they can find some kind of hope and help. 
Now listen to me, brethren of the household of faith. Sometimes, some Christians are so long and so far into the Christian room that they can no longer remember what they were like on the outside. Sometimes it is a challenging and painful discipline to peek back out and remember who we were without the grace of God in our lives. To remember that this is the way that all of us come to God. We all come to God wounded, broken, diseased, starving, longing, hoping for something. We all come to surrender a broken life. I was called by a family that I knew that their son had committed a terrible crime. He'd gone through the trial. He was convicted. And he was in the county lockup in that brief moment where he's locked up in the county lockup waiting for transfer to the state penitentiary. And he asked to see me, and so I went to see him. And when I was there, he said, Dr. Rutland, I'm going to spend the next years in the state pen. He said, I cannot face what I'm going to face there. I can't get through that without God back in my life. He said, I need God back in my life. I said, let's pray right now. He said, wait a minute. That's not my question. He said, all my life I've heard of jailhouse religion. I hear people say, oh, that's just jailhouse religion. He said, I want you to look me in the eye and tell me the truth. Do you believe that what I'm experiencing right now is just jailhouse religion? I said, son, I'm 100% convinced it's jailhouse religion. He looked so devastated, his jaw dropped open. I said, the only thing is, there isn't any other kind. Nobody comes to God because it's a nifty idea. We all come to God out of some level of perceived need. My family needs help. I need help. I need healing. I need deliverance. I need salvation. I need to deal with guilt and condemnation. I need deliverance. Somehow all of us come broken, starving, wounded lepers. Until we can face that, we can't really surrender. Now, as they come out to the camp of the Syrians, this is where the story gets really rich. What is it they expect to find? Of course, guards, sentries. It's what we call in the army a picket line. They've set up guards because they need to sleep at night in their tents. But what they're afraid of is that the desperate army inside the walls will mass at the gates, wait till they're asleep, charge out in some desperate charge, and see if they can do a surprise attack. So they would post guards out here. Now, as you approach the picket line, you want to make noise because what's your greatest fear? Your fear is that you will find some guard that's fallen asleep on guard duty and you step on a twig or make a noise or something and wake him up. And before you can say anything, he jerks out an AK-47 and busts a cap in you. And you're just as dead as if he meant it. So you come out making noise. Don't, don't shoot. I'm coming out. Just four, four old lepers. We're not armed. We're not armed. We're coming out. And they get up to the line where there should be all these guards. And there's nobody. And they say to themselves, these Syrians are overconfident. They didn't even post guards. But that's not the end of it. They come up onto the hill overlooking the valley. And the tents of the Syrians cover the valley. And it says, remember, not once but twice, it says it's twilight and the cook fires are curling into the evening sky. 
Everything is there. They can smell food cooking. They can see the all, all of the equipment of the army is still there. Over here is the tanks and half tracks, and armored personnel carriers, jeeps, the motor pool is all there. Over in the back, heavy ordnance. There's the howitzers are over there. Everything just as it is. And the Syrians are all gone. It's all gone. They don't even know what's happened. They just know a victory has been won. It's all theirs, and they can't even explain it. It is the perfect picture of God's work of redemptive grace through Jesus Christ. That while we're dead in our sins, he works a miraculous victory that we didn't understand. We, we just walk in and receive it. It's all done. Now, here's what he did. God caused the sound of an attacking army to come upon the Syrians. No army, just the sounds of it. They can hear suddenly the march, the tramp of thousands and thousands of boots. There's a, the rattle of 50 caliber machine guns. There's mortars going off everywhere. The scream of jets low overhead dropping napalm. There's just something about the smell of napalm in the twilight. And they can, they can hear all that, bombs going off, everything. And they say, here's what's happened. The Israelis got spies out and they've hired mercenaries from the Hittites and the Egyptians. And they're attacking us from the back in a pincer move. We don't even have time to get in our jeeps. And they just drop their guns and run for it. And it's the whole victory all belongs to these four lepers. It's all theirs. Everything. All the equipment, all the treasure, and all the food. What do you think is the first tent that they went into? What do you think is the first tent? The mess tent, right? They're going where there's supper. They run in there and there's pork chops and collard greens and cornbread, buttermilk. And these are southern Syrians. And they run and dive up in the table, and they're laughing. They're eating mashed potatoes, and they're throwing green beans in the air and dancing under those green beans and just stuffing their faces. And then somebody yells, food fight! And they're throwing hush puppies at each other and laughing. They eat until they're stuffed. And then... They begin to look around the tent, and it says they find gold and silver, rubies, jewels, diamonds, the stolen loot of a thousand conquered cities, and it's all theirs. It says that they open the cupboards, and there is expensive raiment. Hart Schaffner and Mark suits in there. Hand-sewn Italian loafers that started about 495 bucks a pair. It's all theirs. Everything is theirs. Can you... Can you remember when you first realized the totality of the victory of God? Not just that your sins had been forgiven. What did we hear this morning from Pastor Paul? Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you ever dared to ask or imagine. You remember how, can you go back and remember how delicious it first tasted when you realized the banquet that he had prepared for you in the presence of your enemies? I remember when I first received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I was a sad, worn-out, defeated Methodist preacher, just lost as a ball in high weeds. And the Bible just seemed, it just didn't make any sense to me. I'd been in the ministry seven years when I received the Holy Spirit. And you know what changed? The Bible. I remember opening the book of Psalms and saying, mm, mm, this tastes, mm, 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 mm. 
And then I'd turn to the book of Isaiah and I'd say, whoa, this, they have changed this book. I got the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they changed the Bible. It was amazing. Can you remember that when you found the promises and the joy and the victory and it was all yours? Do you remember that? It's so wonderful and the joy of it, the, the dancing delight. That's what we have in here is victory. It's all ours. There's a reason this church is called victory. And then they say to themselves, wait a minute here. Those guys in that city, they never gave us a time of day. If they find out that we've got this victory out here, they'll come and take it away from us. And so they go out and bury it in the backyard. By that time, they're hungry again. And they find a tent labeled dessert. They go in the dessert tent, and there's great big pans of deep dish cobbler pie. And great big bowls of nanner pudding. You all were all raised so sophisticated. You say banana pudding, don't you? It's nanner pudding where I grew up. Boxes of vanilla wafers stacked to the top of the tent. It's dessert time. And they're eating and delight and having a good time. And then all of a sudden, one of the men with diamonds stuck to the gravy on his face. He peels the mashed potatoes off of his hands. And he says... Boys, we're not doing the right thing here. This is not right. A miraculous victory has been won. And we know all about it. We're feasting on it. We're rejoicing in it. We're dancing under the green beans. But it's twilight in the city. Darkness is falling. People are dying in there. In deprivation and starvation and cannibalistic horror. It's a nightmare in the city. And we know that they don't have to live that way. We know that there's a victory out here. There's a feast sufficient for everyone, and the enemy has been defeated, and we're burying it in the backyard. Now, I, I, I'm not here to make anybody feel guilty or anything else. I'm just saying that if we know this victory has been won and we are silent while others die around us, some mischief will come on us. We are responsible for the message that we have been, with which we have been entrusted. It's interesting that in this passage, the word twilight is used twice. I'm neither a prophet nor the child of a prophet. But I, I'm not giving you a prophetic interpretation. I'm giving you my own personal historical observation for whatever that's worth. But I believe it's twilight in the West. I think darkness is falling. And I have to tell you, I believe that it may get a lot darker before the light shines. And there are people who need what we are experiencing in this room right now. There are people who live within eyesight of your house, within eyesight of this building, that do not understand the complete victory which has already been won and the banquet table that is prepared for them. They're living in starvation, anger, hurt, bitterness, resentment, envy, strife, sin, and bondages of every kind, and the victory has already been won. And we know it. We know who those people are. Our friends and neighbors and relatives, I'm not inviting you to judge people. I'm just saying you live around them. You know that these people are, are, are in deep trouble spiritually in their families, in their homes, in their lives. Now, why won't we just speak to them? 
Why won't we just go to him, talk to him? Let me talk to you about the Lord. Why won't we just say something? Look, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be Paul here, Pastor Paul. In fact, there are people that you can access whom he cannot access. He can't touch them. I can't. Billy Graham, the greatest preachers in the world can't touch them because we have no access to them. Furthermore, when you say to somebody, I'm a preacher, a wall comes down. They, they, they think you're a, you know, a paid professional soul winner. Well, he gets paid to talk to people. Okay, fine. But when, when a plumber talks to his apprentice about the Lord, when, when a teacher talks to another teacher, when a student talks to another student, they, they don't know why you're willing to run that risk. They, they, they have no explanation for that level of boldness. They, they can't explain it. And the, their, their wall of resistance is ruptured. And you have access to their lives in a way that we never would have it. One of the reasons we won't do that is, of course, nobody grooves on rejection. Nobody likes it. You know, when I cannot talk to you about the Lord, get away from me. I hate Jesus and I hate you. You know, nobody likes that feeling. But remember this. You are not offering them you. You are offering them Jesus. And therefore, when they reject, they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. They're not rejecting you. And listen to me. Jesus is very mature emotionally. He can handle their rejection. He's like, you know, big and all, okay? So he's not wounded. Let him deal with the rejection. Sometimes they will reject you. Get away. I don't want to talk. Sometimes, though, you have to have a sense of humor. You just, you, sometimes you just have to laugh. I was on an airplane the other day, and this guy turned to me. You know, like you do on airplanes. And we were talking a little while, and he said, well, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a minister. And he said, well, I'm an atheist. I said, dude, do they pay you for that? Because, no I, no, I didn't know that was a job, you know? He said, well, no, it's not my job. It's not. Well, I said, you confused me. You asked me what my job was. I told you I'm a minister, and you said I'm an atheist. I thought you meant it was your job. He said, no, no, it's not my job. It's not my job. I just wanted that out there right at the start. But he wouldn't leave it alone. He just pounded on it. I'm an atheist. You know, the church is a ripoff. Preachers are all con men. There's no such thing as Jesus. God doesn't exist. No heaven. He's just going on. I just sat there and let him pour it all out. Well, the, the plane got into a lot of turbulence, you know. It was really bouncing, really. It got pretty serious. And finally, the captain came over the loudspeaker. He said, I'm going to ask the flight attendants to take a seat. We're going to discontinue service. And... And I asked you to fasten your seatbelt. Well, we did. And it got pretty rough. And I could see the guy's hands gripping the armrest there, you know, like this. And then, I don't know anything about aerodynamics, so I may be using the wrong word here. But we hit what I call an air pocket. I don't know what the right word for it is, but you're flying along and bouncing like this. And then all of a sudden, the plane just drops. And it feels like it drops hundreds of feet. I don't know how far. It may go eight foot, but it, it feels like it dropped 300 feet. And when it comes to the bottom of that, when it stops, you feel like you've hit a mountain. Well, you haven't. It's just the bottom of that air pocket. But you go, boom, like that. And this guy goes, Jesus! <laughs> I, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I, I couldn't help. I just burst out laughing. I couldn't help myself. And he kind of looked over at me for a minute, and then I got to hand it to him. I've got to hand it to him. He laughed. He did. He laughed. You know, an atheist with a sense of humor, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a common thing. 
Sometimes you just got to laugh. Sometimes you don't get to close the deal. You speak to someone in a natural way. Natural, look, you don't have to... You know, I'm not inviting you to notch your gun with the lives of pagans, but in a natural way, you know? Look, you're working on a carpenter's crew, and the guy next to you hammers his thumb, and he utters a curse. Okay, you don't have to hit him over the head with your Bible. You're going to hell. Jesus is happy about it, and so am I. There's nothing more unappetizing than an angry Christian. But why don't you say this? Look, friend, I'm not judging you. I'm not condemning you in any way. I know where you're coming from, and I know that hurt. But that God that you just mentioned, he loves you. That Jesus that you were talking about right there, he came into my life and changed my life. I know where you are because I've been there. And what I'd like, if you would, at lunchtime, why don't we sit together and let me talk to you about what Jesus has done in my life. Plant that seed. If he says no, then fine, that's it. I, I gave an altar call at a men's convention not too long ago in Georgia, and hundreds of men came up. There was one man that came to the front. He was weeping so hard. He had his hands up, and he just kept saying the same thing. At last, at last. This, this will show you the ego in preacher's souls. I went over to him, and I said, Well, my friend, I can tell that my sermon has deeply moved you. He said, I thought you'd never shut up. <laughs> he said, I don't even know what you were talking about. He said, I came here to answer a question that's been bothering me for 25 years. He said, you could have read from the yellow pages and I would have settled this. He said, I came here to settle it. And I said, tell me about it. He said, 25 years ago, a man asked me, if you were to die right now, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? He said, I rejected him. I told him to get away from me, never talk to me again. I've never seen him again. He said, 25 years. That question has bothered me. And he said, I came in this building tonight, and I came to this altar tonight, and tonight I know at last, at last, if I were to die now, I'd go to heaven. So here's, here's my question. It's always fun to close the deal. But are you willing to be used of God to plant a seed that somebody else will close 25 years from now? The outcome of this situation is not up to you. But then, you say, well, I just, I'm just not at a place in my level of faith and boldness. I'm not condemning anybody. I just, I just, I can't do that. I can't just walk up to somebody and ask them, if you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? I can't do that. Is there anything I can do? Yes, there is. Here it is. Invite somebody to go to church with you. Invite somebody to go to church with you. There are people near you that are longing for the victory at victory. And they just need somebody to say, look, come and go to church with me. Afterward, I'll, I'll take you to some expensive place. We'll go to Taco Bell. After, <laughs> Don't laugh at me. That hurts me. We'll have some expensive lunch. I'll take you out. Bring them to church with you. Invite them to church. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. This handsome young preacher right here is trying to light a fire. What he needs is some of you to tote wood. He needs you to get the wood in here. I'm going to preach at a little tiny Methodist church in Georgia. About the size, maybe the first eight rows of this section right here. And the, I was to be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, and Tuesday night. 
So Sunday morning, I asked if you've ever led any, personally led anybody to Christ, will you raise your hand? Not one hand. So I said, well, let's take it a little different. If you've ever invited somebody, brought somebody to church with you that got saved, raise your hand. Nobody. I felt, you know, we'll leave that and try a different sermon. So after the service, this older lady came up to me, and she was out of the frame. She was pretty angry, and I thought she was angry at me. I thought she wanted me to apologize, and I wasn't going to apologize. She was angry with herself. She said, young man, that was the most humiliating moment of my life. She said, I've been a member of this church for 60 years. She said, I'm 72 years old. She said, I was baptized and joined this church when I was 12. And she said, I've sat in the same pew for 60 years. She said, I cannot think of one single person who's a Christian today because of me. She said, I don't believe I've ever even brought a guest with me to church, not anybody I can think of. She said, tonight, that's going to change. When I got to church that night, she was sitting on the front row with the dirtiest little girl I've ever seen. I went over to her and I said, is this your granddaughter? She said, this is not my granddaughter. I said, I don't know who she is. She said, this afternoon, I went to the most dangerous violent, crime-ridden trailer park in this county, and I knocked on the door of 25 house trailers before somebody would loan me a child. <laughs> she said, now, I've got her here tonight. She said, now, do your job. <laughs> that night, I gave the altar call, and the lady brought the little girl to the altar, prayed with her, showed the lady how to pray, and prayed with the little girl to receive Christ. The next night, the lady was there, the little girl was there, it was a teenage boy. And I said to the little girl, now, who is this? She said, this is my big brother. <laughs> that night I gave the invitation, the lady was there, the little girl, and the teenage boy, and he prayed with me to receive Christ. The next night, the lady was there, the little girl, the teenage boy, and a middle-aged woman, and I said to the kids, now, who is this? They said, this is our mother. And that night, the lady got saved. Now listen, 60 years of fruitless, self-indulgent, church-going Christianity had given way in three nights. She was used for the change of a, of a family and three souls saved. In three nights. So it's, it's good to invite a Christian to church. I hear people say that all the time. I hear them at our church. and say, oh, Dr. Rutland, this is... My friend, they're wonderful people, Christian people. That's great. Invite Christians. That's great. But does anybody know a heathen? I mean, I used to live in this town. There were some pagans here when I was here. Has, has everybody in the whole city gotten saved? Don't you know anybody that's just lost? Bring them to church. Bring them to church. Why, you know, take them to church and come up to Pastor Paul and say, this is my friend. Now, why won't we do that? Why won't we do that? A guy came to me the other day. Listen to this. He's telling me about his brother-in-law. He said, please pray for my brother-in-law. I'm so burdened for him. He said, he's just a, a wino, a lush. He lives in a cabin out in the woods. No running water, no power. He just lives like an animal. Stays stoned out in the woods. And I said, bring him to church. Go. He said, he doesn't want to come. I said, go and get him. Pressure him. Listen to what he said to me. He said, I'm afraid I'll run him off. No, he's off. 
He's off. You can't get any more off than that. He's off. Do you know what he really meant? Do you know what he really meant? He meant, I'm afraid he won't like me. We are more concerned with what people think of us than we are about their eternal disposition. I've been coming up, I've come up with a, a bumper sticker. I've got an idea for, Pastor Paul, I believe we can make a million dollars on this. I want to get these printed. See what you think about it. See if you think it'll work. Friends don't let friends drive demon-possessed. What do you think? <laughs> you like it? I think it'll go. No, we have to get past what other people think of us. If the issue is not what they think of you. The issue is whether or not they're going to spend eternity in hell or in heaven. And that has to be far and away the more important issue. Now, it's not as complicated as you think. It's not as complicated as you think. We're going to, we're going to actually do this right here, right now. I told you this is a simple message. In just a moment, we're going to practice just asking somebody, if you were to die right now, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? We'll practice it right now. We're going to divide up into twos, just two people, all over the house. The first person will ask, if you were to die right now, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? If you're not sure, look, why would you lie about that? That's like cheating at solitaire. Just, <laughs> just tell them the truth. You'll say, okay, well, I'm not sure. It doesn't make me Adolf Hitler. I'm just not sure. Okay? And then the other guy, you turn around and ask the other guy, well, what about you? If you were to die right now, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? And you answer. And then you can sit down. That's all it is. You don't need to give them your life story or anything. You ask them. They ask, answer back, okay? Now, the only thing is, you cannot do this with your spouse. That's the one rule. You can't ask your spouse, because I know how that'll go. <laughs> Say to your husband, if you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? Yes, I would. You're lying. <laughs> I live with you. You're doomed. <laughs> no, we're not going to run that risk, okay? All right, I'll show you how it works. What's, what's your name, friend? What is it? Reginald. All right, Reginald, if you just, you're going to, we're going to model it for all these people, all right? So I'm going to ask you first. Reginald, if you were to die right this moment, are you 100% sure you would go to heaven? Yes, thank you for answering. All right, now you ask me. You ask me now. Yes, I am, Reginald, by the grace of God. But thank you for asking me. That's it. That's all we do. Then you can sit down, okay? All right? So here's what we want to do. All, all over the house, I want you to stand where you are, find someone near you there, and you ask them. The one of you ask the other one, and then the other one back. And then you can be seated. Now don't give them your biography. Just ask. If you were to die right now, would you go to heaven? You answer them, then you ask them. All right, you got it? You can be seated as soon as you've done that. And then you can be seated all over the house. As soon as you've done that, just be seated. Now. All right. All right, are you ready? Now listen. I'm not asking what you answered. 
please, please listen to what I'm saying. I'm not asking what you answered. I'm asking what the other person answered to you. What did the other person say? If the other person that you asked said, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. If the other person answered that way, will you raise your hand? If the other person said, I'm not sure, raise your hand. Look, there they are, all over the house. Here we are up here, down here, here's some more, over here, over here, over there. What about up in the cheap seats up there? There we are, good. <laughs> up there, up there, great. Up there, many, 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 many. There's more, wave to me up there. It's a big house, so I can see you. That's great, a lot up there, down here. Who else? Anybody else over here that the other person you ask said, I'm not sure. That's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to answer for yourself. Anybody else? Anybody over here? So I'm not sure. What about up there in that section? Anybody okay? Great, great. Now listen to me. Here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Now we'll just remain seated, and I want you, if your person said, I'm not sure, I want you to go to them right now and say, look, friend, let's get this thing settled. I will go with you. I'll go with you, and let's walk up there. And you get them and bring them up here right now. Come right here. Come right up here. Come up here, guys. Come on. That's great. Come on. Come on. That's great. That's great. Come on. Come right here. Come on. Your friends and your family will wait for you. Come on, girls. Come on up here. That's great. That's wonderful. Come on. People coming from way up in the back. We'll wait. We'll wait. Come on. Come on up here. That's wonderful. Isn't this wonderful? Come on. Wow. That's wonderful. Come on. We're waiting. We're still waiting. Come right on up. This is so wonderful. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Come on. We'll wait for you. Come on. Thank God. Oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Come right on up. Come on up. They're still coming. They're still coming. Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. Come on. Come up a little bit further so the people up in the aisle can get a little closer. We've got people all the way up the aisle. That's wonderful. Come on. Thank God. Come on. Come on up. Oh, this is so wonderful. Come up a little closer. We got people all the way back to aisles. Wow. Wow, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Now, altar counselors, altar counselors, now listen to me. We got a lot, a lot, a lot of fish here. You better get a big net. You understand what I'm saying? The altar counselors need to be ready, and you're going to have to work with a group of people at the same time. Now, listen to me. I'm going to pray with you now. This is so simple. It's so simple. People think there's some, like some prescribed sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard of that? Pray the sinner's prayer? There, that's not in the Bible. Okay, the sinner's prayer is, you know, save me, Jesus. That's uh, like it, okay? But there are other things that we'll say, and I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you in this so you have the assurance of your salvation. Look, I used to live in this state. Nobody ought to drive on an Oklahoma highway that isn't sure of their salvation. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what's up with you sinners. What, 
What's the deal with this? Nice people. You get behind the wheel of a pickup truck and you go demonic. <laughs> so we're going to settle that. Nobody to leave here today that isn't sure of their salvation. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. When you pray this prayer, two things are going to happen. One is going to happen inside you. One's going to happen inside you. Jesus will come and live in you, take away your sin, and you'll be born again. But there's something that will happen in heaven at the same time. It says that Jesus has a great big book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And when you pray this prayer, he's going to write your name in that book. Your name may never... Your name may never be on the front page of the New York Times, but it's going to be in Jesus' book. And when you get to heaven and the angel says, why should I let you in? All you have to say is, check the book. Check the book. And when Jesus writes your name, nobody can take it out. Nobody can rub it out. Once your name is there, it's there. Amen? Now, I'm going to lead you in a simple little prayer. Why don't we all pray it? It'll, it'll just... Put our faith with theirs. Now, you have been bold to walk up here. I'm so proud of you. Now, don't pray this prayer like a sissy. Let's, let's pray. <laughs> Open your mouth and pray. Amen? Are you ready? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I know that I've sinned. And if I were to die now, I deserve to go to hell. But I know Jesus died in my place. He took my sin. He died my death so that I never have to go to hell. I repent of my sins. I open my heart. Lord Jesus, come and live in me. Wash me in your blood. Forgive me of my sins. I receive you now as my Savior. Write my name in your book. I believe this is happening now. I am being born again, and you're writing my name. By faith, if I were to die now, I know, I know, now say it with some faith, I know I would be in heaven with you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Well, magnify the Lord in this house. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Now listen, I want you to stay right where you are. Stay right where you are. Now look right up here. Look up here. Who brought who here? Which one of you girls brought the other one? You brought each other? Okay, we got a miracle. We got fish catching fish. We got... That's wonderful. That's wonderful. What about you guys? You brought each other too? Is there anybody that was a Christian when we got here? That's what I... <laughs> who did you bring? You brought this guy right here? You brought this guy when you got here. Now listen to me. This is wonderful. I want you to make sure you understand the point of this. The point is, Paul, Pastor Paul didn't win this young man to Jesus. I didn't win him. You brought him to the Lord. You brought him this morning. Did it occur to you when you came to church this morning, today, somebody's going to come to the assurance of their salvation because God will give me boldness. Look what happened. Look what happened. Do you see what I'm saying? Did you bring two? Yeah, we brought her. Oh, it took two to get her. Oh. Oh. Well, God loves a hard head, honey. I want you to know that. 
That's great. That's great. What about you? You brought this guy right here. That's wonderful. Isn't that great? Isn't this wonderful? Do you understand the point? I just want to make sure you understand. It is, you can do this. You can do this. This is not on Pastor Paul. This is not on me. You can do this. Do you see what happened? You just turn to somebody and ask them. They said, no, I'm not sure. You said, let's go settle it. Let's take care of it. Bring them with you. Bring them to church and tell Pastor Paul, now do your job. <laughs> Amen? Amen. Now I want you to stay right where you are. Some prayer counselors are going to talk to you, give you some material, get your name, that sort of thing. Everyone else, you can be seated if you will. And Pastor Paul is coming. God bless you and God bless Victory Church. Hey, church, one second. As they're praying down here at the altar, there's a point from this message that I want us to walk away with. And that is, Dr. Rutland mentioned this in the last service, but he said, I would hate to be going up in the sky when Jesus returns and have a neighbor looking at me saying, you didn't tell me about this. You didn't warn me. He told a story about a barber who had that experience. Why didn't you tell me? And I just wanted him to just say it real quick to you before we dismiss a challenge this week to tell someone about Jesus. Don't, don't let anyone, don't come to that place where someone says to you, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you tell me? You knew all this and you didn't say anything to me. Don't let that happen in your life. God will guide you to someone if you will just open your mouth. Amen. 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 Did y'all receive that word this morning? What a powerful message.